Accessibility should be a cornerstone of society, whether you are in a working environment or studying at a school or university. But often this aspect is neglected, even in modern societies. In this special episode of the Ideas Between the Lines podcast, Jagasa Agarwal, a development practitioner and recent graduate of the Institute of Development Studies, interviews three students from the University of Sussex, whom, despite coming from diverse socio-economic and cultural backgrounds, what unites them is their struggle for accessibility. We interview Dan from the UK, who identifies themselves as a non-binary person, Hamza from Nigeria, who identifies as a man, and Diksha from India, who identifies herself as a woman. This episode intends to open an avenue for discussions around disability and accessibility in a larger context of gender and development. Our guests shed light on their personal journey as disabled people and their fights for accessibility in academic and social spaces. Hello everyone. My name is Jigyasa Agarwal and I'm a current master's candidate at Institute of Development Studies. And today you're listening to the Ideas podcast Between the Lines. In today's podcast, we explore the intersections between disability, gender, race, and other identities of a person. For the purpose of this podcast, we acknowledge that there is a debate in globally accepted terminology for disabled people, and we would like to leave it to our guests to decide how they would like to be acknowledged. This podcast also focuses on visible disabilities and acknowledges that disability is a wider and a complex subject. Today, I have with me three guests from different parts of the world. Hello, thank you for having me. My name is Hamza Waziri, and I'm from Nigeria. My professional background encompasses human resources, business and organizational development. I have a BSc in business admin, and also a special skill in community development, which serve as a backbone of my success. I'm a person with physical disability as a result of polio, I use wheelchair as a means of my mobility. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me here. Um, hi, guys. I'm Diksha. Uh, let me just first describe myself. I'm wearing a nice pink jacket with a pony, and I'm sitting on my wing chair. Like I'm my, I call my wheelchair as my wing chair. Uh, so yeah, I identify myself as a disabled woman. And I'm a chevening scholar from India. Uh, my scholarship enabled me to pursue uh, my dream studies at IDS. And uh, of course, it enabled me to live an independent life. Um, before coming to the UK, I was working with FCL on the project for uh, to build the capacity of teachers. And uh, before that, I have eight years of experience in the field of social activism. Uh, especially in disability rights and education of underprivileged children. So thank you, and I'm looking forward to this podcast. Hi, I'm Dan. Um, I work freelance doing LGBT and disability awareness education and consultancy for businesses, and uh, I do a lot of focus on representation of these identities in media as part of my degree. Um, I am an ambulatory wheelchair user, but can be seen as having an invisible disability because it fluctuates with chronic pain and fatigue. Um, So I would like to start uh, by asking you about how your experiences with disability in your respective country contexts 
have shaped your definition of accessibility. What does accessibility really mean to you? I think the most important thing to remember is that if something is accessible for everyone, then it doesn't actually make a difference to the people who don't need that um, put in place, but it makes things more equal overall. A lot of disabilities have conflicting needs where that's really difficult to achieve, but more often than not, there is very little excuse for institutions to not implement accessibility strategies because while you can never truly accommodate every single person, requiring evidence and people's medical information should never need to be part of the process and is technically in breach of the Equality Act. Would you like to maybe expand on how your experience in a in the UK context, you know, like we all know UK as a developed country, as, as a country that has um, an inclusive infrastructure. How has that, your interactions with that infrastructure has sort of shaped your uh, definition of accessibility? Because uh, I'm now diagnosed with autism, but um, despite every single person in my life knowing that I was autistic from the age of four, at no point was I diagnosed in childhood or given any support within the school system because of the stigma around what that would mean. It was seen that if I could achieve academically, regardless of what else I could miss out on, I should push myself to my absolute limits to appear as able-bodied and neurotypical as possible. So it was only once I developed chronic fatigue so bad that I couldn't keep myself awake for longer than five minutes at a time and was passing out in ways that could have been quite dangerous and couldn't complete my exams that people recognised there was a problem despite having symptoms my entire life up until that point. Once I tried to access university, I became even more ill for the same reasons of being asked to push myself beyond what I was capable of and not yet having diagnosis and medical history to back up the fact that I needed help because of those years of being ignored. So the, the need to have significant evidence to gain access to the help that you need is actively precluded by the way in which stigma navigates the system and means that you're ignored until the time when no one can ignore you anymore, at which point they say, well, we don't know why this is happening to you. I ended up being completely housebound for a number of years after that point because I needed to recover from that experience of no longer really being able to walk very far, needing assistance for even very basic tasks, which never would have happened to me if I was given support earlier. I shouldn't have needed to push myself to not need accessibility in order to gain access to it. Uh, as a Nigerian, I need to be fair to my countrymen and women who have actively advocate for societal inclusivity for people with disability. I will use one word to define accessibility in my context as challenging. Because indeed, accessibility for me, I dare say, 
many like me in Nigeria is synonymous with the word challenging. I got my disability at the age of six, and I remember going back to school was a nightmare. To cut the story short, I spent 12 years without having access to a toilet. It's either I have to soil myself or I have to travel 10 kilometers back home to ease myself. So for me and for people like me in Nigeria, accessibility is challenging. So the place where I come from has a rich legacy of education. It is known as the Oxford of the East. Uh, but back then and even now, it was lacking and it is lacking in one thing, that is accessibility. Um, at the very early stages of my life, uh, many schools denied me admission due to the lack of accessible infrastructure. So they used to uh, tell my mother that if you will stay with your daughter for like five to six hours, we will let her stay or we will give her admission in our school. And those were many prestigious schools in my city. Uh, but nobody, like my, my family, like my family background, my financial background was not that much, I was not that privileged uh, to afford, my mother couldn't afford that five to six hours from her work. So she enrolled me in a municipality school and uh, I, I, I really did well in that school but because uh, I, I completed my entire education in vernacular languages and uh, because of disability uh, nobody accepted me. Uh, I, I had no uh, other choice and I had to complete it from uh, this school. Uh, so you know I was uh, I was scoring so well I used to come in a five I was a rank holder in my school every year but the discrimination starts like it started from my birth actually when I, I was born in 1993 I was the first child in my first girl child in my family and uh, my family got to know about my disability after a few months and then they started consulting doctors many spiritual uh, they took help with the the spiritual leaders and they they, they did everything uh, in their capacity but nothing worked uh, so many people used to curse my mother for having this genetic default uh, because they thought that i am uh, disabled because something is wrong with her genes and uh, maybe uh, <laughs> you know it's her responsibility now to take care of me uh, but I was so fortunate to have her in my life uh, even though I was getting uh, so negative response from my well-wishers uh, many people used to tell her that throw that girl to the hostel get rid of her what will you do uh, with her she's not a boy she will she will not go and earn in the future what will you do when she will start menstruating oh she looks so beautiful but who will marry to her so this uh, negative connotations came with the idea of burden but my mother fortunately she never gave up on me 
and she uh, chose to stand besides me every now and then and because of her i'm like sitting here in front of you today so, uh, so this discrimination it's not just limited to the my family or the medical uh, response i got which i got uh, from the doctors or uh, from any educational institutions or from relatives i also have to control my own habits in order to you know uh, pursue my education or even if i have to go outside i'll have to think about oh will they have any washroom because uh, my school lacked in accessibility uh, and i couldn't think of accessible toilets that time uh, if my classroom is on the fourth floor the entire classroom will not shift to the ground floor for one girl so my mother had to take me uh, to the fourth floor i started controlling my dietary habits for two reasons one that i will not have to look for any restroom or washroom and second uh my weight will not be a burden on my mother so this uh i think most of the people who come from this background have to go through this phase at least once in their lifetime so this was the case and like this uh intersection of disability this double discrimination i was facing for my entire life for me accessibility means freedom uh it means in- independence which i am experiencing now in the uk like even uh dan it saying that uh uk is developed but it still lacks in some things but for me i'm still grateful for those few things which i'm experiencing here so this uh this system instill the guilt of having a disability in me and uh, after coming here i got to know about how the social model of disability works and i learned that it's not my problem it's society's problem that they don't have any system in the first place um uh would you like to shed some light on how your experiences um and the expectations around gender in your specific country context like for, for you Hamza in Nigeria and Diksha for you in India and Dan for you in the UK um have impacted your experience as a disabled individual how have they intersected um with your disability the the expectations around gender when this discrimination started from my like within my family this they started questioning like she is not a man she is not she will not go outside and earn or she is a woman but who will marry her if she is disabled so uh, many things uh, many conditions are related uh, to this double discrimination but specifically i want to share my experience of puberty uh, with you all uh it's it's disturbing so there's a warning sign for all of you um so um, when i started menstruating um 
it was like a normal thing like every girl experiences in their life uh, but for me it was altogether a different journey uh, because uh, many of you doesn't know this because uh, for like 22 years of my life i was housebound i never had any friends never in my entire life except my mother uh, so i was so dependent on her that she used to change my pads she used to clean me for like the initial part when i started menstruating because i had no idea what was going with me uh, so yeah many well wishes i will call them again uh, so they suggested my uh, mother to remove my fallopian tube because um, one thing that my periods will not be any burden for anyone for my family uh, not for any other human being if i am visiting their house it will not be a burden to anyone and second thing it was related to my sexuality because i was a girl what if they used to ask uh, this question to my mother what if when you are not around the house and what if someone comes inside your house and does something to her what will you do so it's you know better to get rid of this thing so yeah uh, <laughs> my mother didn't listen to any of this good comments and she uh, raised me so well that now i am i can advocate for the rights of disabled women for their menstruation and for having accessible and inclusive period products uh, speaking from the perspective which i ascribe to a man with disability uh, i think we in some situation we are treated equally but coming from a conservative society that i come from i know like women face double challenge will i say so in that situation we also have a stake on what how to contribute positively towards developing our own community so that's why i ascribe to whenever i'm doing any philanthropical work i make sure that i give reasonable percentage like more than 50 percentage to women because i know for sure having access to resources for women in the community that i'm coming from which is highly patriar- uh, patriarchal in nature is very challenging and it's very difficult for women to access resources especially women with disability so i would like to know if uh, if you've had such an experience while you were growing up as to what expectations did your family or um, the people around you um, hold from you and did these expectations sort of change your change your experience with regards to your own self with regards to the the things you believe about your own self yeah actually i was brought up uh, to provide and also to protect so from the early age i know that i have to struggle knowing fully well that the uh, environment is not suitable for me so i started business as young as at the age of 16 i used to leave my comfort zone carry some materials and go around the community to sell so i started earning as a 
as early as 16 years old. So, and I have a very supportive family. My dad, may his, rose, may his soul rest in perfect peace, he always believed in me and gave me all the opportunity that I can be able to function properly like everyone in the society. He never was discouraged. So I remember my first business that I engaged in, he gave me the capital. And since then, I keep on progressing. From that, I venture into farming, and I was doing relatively okay. And knowing fully well the kind of community I am from, after finishing school, graduating, I came back home. I know that people with disability don't have any opportunity to earn. So having that in mind, I came up with an idea of establishing a business where myself and people like me can earn. And that's how I come up with a able and capable car wash. It's a car wash business where you, when you go there, you will see person on a skateboard actually because wheelchair there is a privilege on skateboard washing car tires, on those on crutches mopping cars. And at first, people were being skeptical in the community. How can these people, persons with disability, be able to wash cars? But, but I have two things in mind, to be able to change the narrative and also change the perspective of people that we are also able and capable if given the opportunity we also excel in all aspects of life. So I have this in mind since from childhood that I have to end, provide and protect. My experience is a little different and I've seen sides of what those expectations look like for both men and women at this point having been perceived um, as both, and in some cases, neither. Sometimes I'm just seen simply as, I guess, a freak, because I can't be placed into either category easily. And with medicine, that meant I saw a significant change in how I was treated by doctors and other medical professionals the second they started viewing me as a man and not a woman. I receive pain treatment more quickly when they see me as a man. I receive diagnosis and pathways to accessibility equipment more quickly when they see me as a man. When I've been perceived as a woman, even more recently, it's always been to dismiss me and to say that my chronic pain is all in my head and that I must just be depressed instead oh, it's just stress, you're just anxious. And a lot of the diagnoses that I have been given when that's been the case um, are 90% given to women. It could almost be attributed to a modern-day hysteria at that point because a significant amount of these people have very real problems that would show up on testing, but they don't bother to do any of that testing because it costs them too much money. So instead, they will say that you don't know your own mind and there have been attempts to have me placed into um, a psychiatric ward instead of treating me. Um, none of my experience of my own body was seen as valid. All of these people usually, um, female doctors even, um, which, which may just be my masculinity was seen as a betrayal to them and meant that 
the definition of trans identity essentially coming under disability itself in this country meant that it was easier to say that I was mentally ill than physically ill in almost every case. Um, the legal definition of a disability is basically any condition that affects your day-to-day -day life for more than six months. And the medical definitions of transgender identity would fall under that category. There are a lot of ways in which that has directly impacted my health. The reason I couldn't access toilets wasn't to do with my disability, it was because of my gender. My school outright banned me from using toilets or taking part in sports. Um, I was completely segregated whenever something was a gendered activity. So I was denied sex education in the same way the segregated classes of disabled students weren't given that either. So despite being asked to perform an able-bodied identity, I was still missing out on all of the same things just because of my gender not matching up in the way they wanted it to. And there were a lot of times where that did reflect directly on gender. Um, it was at first advised that, like, maybe I wasn't really a man. Maybe I just haven't had, like, the right relationship with a man, and then I'll figure myself out. Maybe I just need to be affirmed as a masculine woman. Maybe I don't have enough estrogen. That um, There was a point at which my mum tried to force me to go on the pill because she thought that would fix me and change how I identified. And when I was about 15 and had like one of my first boyfriends, despite him identifying as a gay man, there was a lot of pressure that I should take a break from my studies and try and like get pregnant and have a baby. And then I can transition after that because my gender won't matter anymore if I've already passed on the genetics. They didn't want me to really play a part in raising that child. They were happy to do it themselves, and I wouldn't have to have anything to do with that. As long as I fulfilled that purpose um, of what was seen as essentially my body's purpose, regardless of my identity. And after that, it would be fine. I could go away, I could do all of the medical transition that I wanted to do to be seen as a man in society. And it would be fine, because I've already had a child, what else is a woman for? And in trying to access medical transition, these issues came up again. The system hasn't changed significantly since the 1960s, so if you want to have access to surgery or hormones, you have to perform the most repressive version of what being a man or being a woman looks like, to have it approved by a group of professionals who have no idea what your experience is. So I consistently had to perform masculinity beyond how I actually felt. I had to do more and more to be my gender because it wasn't enough for me to say who I was. Other people had to constantly approve of that. And I still can't get married or die as a man without submitting 
years' worth of medical evidence to a government board that would have to approve that also to have a separate piece of paper than all of the other things that have had my gender changed on, like my passport or my NHS record, just so I can do those two things. And all of my childhood health records, the second my gender did legally change, got completely deleted and wiped from the system. They don't let you actually change your gender and be the same person. You essentially get reborn with a new NHS number. So anytime someone needs medical information, like whether that's my vaccine records or different childhood illnesses, I don't have any access to that proof or evidence. It's completely inaccessible to me. According to the system, that person died aged 18 the second I needed to become a man in their eyes. And this also means if I need any kind of cancer screenings, um, this means they don't recognize that I have certain organs that they associate with being a woman, so I won't necessarily come up for screening for any of those cancers on their system. If I start having symptoms of anything like that and I don't have um, something like hysterectomy so that that removes that risk, despite it not being necessary for me, they won't be able to pick that apart from the symptoms I already have because of my disability. So I won't get treated until it's too late, most likely. I actually um, had a question on what Dan just shared. Um, like you said that when you presented a different gender, you got better treatment and you had to go out of your way to <coughs> present a different gender. Um, I wanted to know more about um, your experience, Hamza, and your experience, Diksha. If uh, you've at any point in your life felt that it would have been easier if you presented a different gender. Like to be honest, I never felt like that except uh, when I was on my periods because every time I have my period someone will come to me or to my mother and they will suggest just to, you know get rid of this thing it's better for your daughter and like when dad said his mom tried to fix him I like this idea of why world is behind like want to fix everything I don't know. They, uh, when it comes to medical treatment, I can tell you many women who identify themselves as disabled, they don't get any access to healthcare because, again, accessibility. Second thing is sensitization. Uh, in India, even though you have provision of having accessibility at first place, people who are in charge of implementing those provisions are so insensitive towards uh, the community that they will just insult you on your face for having disability at first place. Uh. I did find that a lot of my treatment improved when I was seen as a man, but if they knew that I was trans, then that almost balanced it out with how negatively that was treated under the exact same system. If I was trying to get diagnosed with something that mostly affected women, 
then I would be dismissed as, you don't really have that symptom, you're just feminine in this way. And it was almost seen that like my rejection of femininity and my body was what was manifesting my pain in a lot of ways. A lot of times people associate like stress with causing certain things like chronic pain conditions and it's all seen as in the mind and almost a hundred percent of the time if I'm seen as a woman or even just more feminine or trans I will be sent to a psychologist first and not actually have it investigated like if I was sent to a rheumatologist or um, a surgeon instead to see what's going on. I wouldn't be sent for different scans to see what's going on, see if there's any structural damage like an MRI. I'd be sent to a psychologist who would go, maybe this is just because you're trans and it's hard being trans. Maybe that's where all of your problems come from and if that went away you'd be fine. Some people think because of the way gender interacts and the lack of studies done on women that certain medications that they know haven't been tested well on women will suddenly magically work for me if I've been on testosterone for long enough and that that will get rid of my pain. None of that's based in any sort of medical reality. People are just making up what they think gender means in that context. There's a term for this genuinely called trans broken arm syndrome because so many of us in this community get dismissed for any medical problem just because we're trans and told that that's the problem. All of these things are intersecting with each other all the time and if transphobia in this country is allowed to continue the way it is then that will also remove a lot of healthcare routes for disabled children in the same way because yeah. they won't be given the same grounds of competency to make their own medical decisions. Yeah. And parents are not often not well informed. You are listening to an episode of the IDS Between the Lines podcast. For the full set of episodes, please visit www.ids.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Is it that sometimes when we are a part of a social group, um, when you guys are a part of a social group, uh, you feel like you have to sort of put aside some parts of your identity? Um, like, for instance, um, Diksha, if you're, if you're in a group filled with white women with disability, um, do you feel like you have to put aside your identity as a brown woman, as as a woman from India who is coming from, let's say, less developing country or, or a developing country and not a developed country. But like, do you feel that you have to change your interactions with a social group and sort of elude yourself of some parts of your identity which you would rather not? Um, and if you could, if you could maybe talk about some of your experiences on that well being a male disabled person I can't say that uh, my gender race or ethnicity have any bearing on how I'm accepted in the society 
I'm just a normal guy with common recognized condition and I go about my normal life. But whenever disability is mentioned, some part of the community or society sees you as a calamity, nuisance or minus to the society who have nothing to contribute and they use you as a tool to make money in some part of the world. Oh. They will deny you education. Yeah. They will deny you access to whatever like that will make you a productive person in the society and you end up in the street. The only thing you can do is to beg for money. For example, Nigeria and the northern part of the country I'm from, when you have disability, the next thing you will do is for your parents to monetize you. They will just put you on the street to be begging for arms or money to feed yourself. Because sometimes they see you as the burden. Some don't want to take responsibility of you. And you have to eat to survive. So the only way for you to survive is to beg. I think the charity thing is definitely on a completely different scale here because of the way in which the benefit system is portrayed. Um, constantly you'll see different newspapers talking about benefits fraud and despite disability fraud being the tiniest amount of all of it costing very little money, it's what the most focus is placed on. And I think there's a long history of the concept of disabled people faking to get that kind of money. So there's calculators, how much of your wages are paying for disability benefits. Um, and things like that where they're constantly putting forward this idea of disabled people as a burden. Our charity events happen on a televised scale by the BBC every single year and the attention is always placed on children primarily and you'll see who gets the most pity and it really is described as like pity porn. Yeah. People almost seem to get off on this idea that they're being so, so helpful and look at these poor creatures like they're animals in a zoo and not like that's something that could happen to you. There's a phrase in a lot of older disability writings that if you live long enough, you will become disabled because our concept of the elderly is often entrenched in disability, but it's not socialized that way. It's seen as almost an exception. So the onus is placed on the disabled person to perform their disability to an able-bodied gaze in order to get that kind of funding. People don't have good awareness of ambulatory wheelchair users or invisible disabilities, and it feeds into that idea that you're faking, people try and catch you out all the time. If you have a prosthetic limb on one leg and not the other, the way the image flips um, on camera will mean that on social media people are constantly saying, why are you using it on different legs? Rather than realizing that that's just a camera thing that happens to everyone. If I have to readjust my legs or stand up for a little bit to reach a higher shelf from my wheelchair, the assumption is, 
it's a miracle and I'm cured or I'm faking for the money, not I had to pay 2,000 of my own money to fund my wheelchair because the NHS refused yeah. Yeah. and not and uh, like uh, it's funny to see the things they portrayed in media like despite having this disability this guy or this girl achieve this yeah. these uh, things in their life so like I mean <laughs> what kind of words you're using man <laughs> Yeah, it's like I guess portraying that they could cannot, yeah. but yet they did. So it's like it's, it's uh, you might have heard this term, inspirational porn. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so, so my disability is not inspiration. Like I am, I know what I'm doing to spend my entire day. Yeah, basically, but is it like? Please correct me if I'm wrong, mm. but like yeah. basically, is it saying that? Oh, because I'm disabled, I have to go over the over my boundaries to prove myself, or something like that. I need I need to take extra efforts to prove myself every time. Come on. And still, you know, some of these religious institutions also capitalize on this. You will see them performing fake miracles on people yeah. with disability, in the saying that uh, they have cure. Yeah. <laughs> for your disability, you will see a person on wheelchair and then somebody will be praying on him, the next 10 he will be working. <laughs> and that's a means of, you know, the institution to be getting money while scamming people, literally. Yeah. yeah. This isn't a very religious country and yet you, s you will still get people pray for you on the street almost any time you go out now. That's true. It's there's a tiny portion of the population now that is Christian compared to what it used to be. And still those people are going out of their way to interrupt whatever you're doing, to pull you into their own belief systems. And I think even with the inspiration porn, the Paralympics is particularly guilty of this with all of their slogans centering around the idea that these people are superhuman and yeah. therefore less and, than human. Uh, to be honest, for these reasons, uh, coming back to your question, I found very difficult to engage in a conversation with able-bodied people because you don't know how, how they will portray you in their mind uh, or what is uh, going on in their mind when they first see you. We don't want sympathy. We just don't want your sympathy. Even older people who have acquired their disabilities later at that point have these views so entrenched that you can't even really hold that kind of conversation with them either. I've often been sent to disability support groups specific to my conditions and every single one of them is me and then a group of women over the age of 50 who have accepted that their lives are over and giving up work and stuff and just putting all of their effort into their hobbies and their children and when I'm there as like a 16, 18 year old being like I yeah. still have things to do yeah. there's no one to empathise with my experience in that case they don't understand the way that I claim a disabled identity and feel pride in it they see it as something that is still shameful and a punishment to them so Dan, on what you just said, um, that you claim pride in your disability. And um, I've been thinking about this. And um, I was wondering if, 
the fact that most of the people most of the sort of abled body society thinks that because disabled people themselves do not want to be identified as disabled because they themselves sort of desire to have this normal body and be able to function as sort of normal people in our society as described normal do um i was wondering if if that's sort of an excuse for the people in authority or for the uh for you know for the ones who provide infrastructures as accessible that that can be an excuse uh for them to not hold themselves accountable because they think oh oh well disabled people themselves are not happy with who they are so why just waste time and money to create an infrastructure that is more accessible or that is more inclusive to their needs yeah i think so much even in the process of being diagnosed with a disability in this country is centered around the mental health repercussions of that because of those ideas of it as something that's shameful and that you have to grieve your body and your functioning and the parts of your life that you won't be able to do again that's part of why i think the concept of like um gay pride being now applied to disability and that movement is so vital like there's a flag now there's um a disability pride that they hold in Brighton where everyone marches along the seafront in their wheelchairs and i see that really help people find that sense of community that we're often denied by the infrastructure itself if i want to go out somewhere with another disabled person especially another wheelchair user there's only one space on the bus there's maybe two on a train we can't flock together very easily because there's no infrastructure designed for it how how many wheelchairs can you fit on a dance floor not that many there's so many barriers that we don't have space for just us it's not a thing that exists even hospitals frequently don't have enough of the infrastructure to hold multiple of us in a room if you try and go to a doctor's office how wide are the doorways it's really hard to have more than one wheelchair in any room people say oh well you don't see that many people use this or go to these places and not only does that ignore all the people with invisible disabilities who will be in those spaces and won't be seen as being disabled but it ignores the reasons why people aren't in those spaces to begin with a lot of people struggle to leave their homes in yeah. something here you know my answer to your question it's uh, accessibility is a human right that is inherited to all human kind are uh, regardless of gender you know ethnicity religion or disability yeah um in terms of disability access in educational infrastructure specifically um like what are some very very notable differences that you've seen in your countries like india and nigeria and in the uk okay uh, access to education uh, here in the uk and my country nigeria uh i think we have to take cognizance 
that uh, UK is a developed country and uh, Nigeria is still developing. So I have three key points that I want to elaborate on. And number one, it's legal framework and policies. You know, the UK have implemented a comprehensive legal framework, such as the Equality Act uh, 2010, which provide protection against dis uh, disability discrimination and required educational institution to make reasonable adjustment to ensure access for disabled individuals. In Nigeria also we have similar, uh, uh, dis uh, what's it called, uh, Discrimination Against Persons with Disability Prohibition Act 2018. But there is a clause that says that there is a five-year transitional period for both the public and private uh, institution to make adjustment for people with disability. And in that regard, most of our institutions are not accessible. Because I remember after coming back, after graduating and coming back to my country, I was the first person in my entire northeastern part of the country to construct the first physically friendly toilet for people with disability. And mind you, we have government in place. So I have to take this initiative to contribute also my own quota towards the betterment of my community and also the disabled community. In taking a project, I have to embark on an extensive advocacy telling the government that if there is a will, there is always a way. Through the advocacy, we were able to take one school and convert it to become a very accessible school to, uh, to people with disability, where education is free. You know, I constructed some RAM, and it's, it's achievable, it's doable. So, like I have said, UK is a developed country while we're still developing. These are some of the challenges that are in place currently. In 2017, the Prime Minister of India introduced this term called the Vyang. It means divine body. This term is itself it's so derogatory and discriminatory. We don't have any disabled community uh, united for accessible or inclusive infrastructural movement. Yeah, like I remember when I was in school and uh, I'm from this now called city Jhansi in India. And when I was in school and my school was the best school in that entire city and people with really, really good financial, economical backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds were coming to study in that school. Um, and there was not a single elevator slash lift slash ramp in that entire school and it was it spread huge, huge, and um, every classroom was had, had we had to climb up the stairs, and there was like two floors, three floors, not even a single. Um, we have right way. to equality. We have our fundamental rights. We have Sarvashiksha Abhiyan, Education for All campaign in India, but it's still um, lagging for disabled population and I'm not just talking about my type of disability it's about 
मोबिलिटी विजुअल इम्पेयरमेंट हियरिंग इम्पेयरमेंट कॉग्नेटिव साइको सोशल एवरीथिंग लाइक इट्स जस्ट बिकॉज माई डिसबिलिटी इज विजिबल पीपल टेक एफर्ट्स टू यू नो चेंज द थिंग्स अराउंड मी एंड आई एम वेरी ग्रेटफुल टू बी ऑनेस्ट दैन आई एम वेरी ग्रेटफुल टू यू नो एक्सपीरियंस द एनवायरमेंट ऑफ दिस कंट्री यू के लेट मी गिव एन एग्जाम्पल earlier my mother had to carry me till to the school to my college she used to wait uh, outside my classroom uh, if i have to go to the washroom she used to accompany me during my classes and everything else uh but, but when i came to ideas my whole uh, perspective changed towards the accessibility um because i remember when uh, i was struggling to have inf- an accommodation uh, in this country uh, initially uh, and i know now i know the reason because of your lived experience stan um i came to meet my course convener colin and he said um, diksha we know that this institution is not perfect um but that's not your problem that's our problem and we'll make sure that you get everything that you needed and that was so touching for me never in my life i saw a person or an institution uh they were coming forward and they were trying to go beyond their limitations to have everything perfect for me and that's why i'm very much grateful for you know uh learning here uh for doing my masters at ids and leaving this legacy all of none of my schools had this kind of infrastructure almost all of them were renovated churches um and coming from somewhere like the Isle of Wight which is considered an area of deprivation and has some of the worst schooling had some of the highest teenage pregnancy rates and some of the worst healthcare consistently f- for well over 40 years now and getting worse all the time um I had to come to Brighton. I had to use my university education to access healthcare I needed because otherwise I wouldn't have been if able to afford to move to somewhere that could treat my conditions at their level of complexity. Yeah. And all of these issues are intersecting with each other all the time. If I have to get a ferry to get an appointment with a doctor who would know what my condition was, then that's costing yeah. a lot of money. the government doesn't really recognize that it's an island so they keep saying oh it's easy you can just go over to portsmouth or southampton mm. as if there's not a body of water in the way that you have to cross yeah. and it's the most expensive body of water to cross in the world by mile so it's not cheap to do either you know last last two years 350 slots of scholarship foreign scholarship were given to nigerians but mind you none no single slot were given to passing with disability 
So this should be taken into consideration. And I think representation matters a lot. Um, like ha disabled people having in position to take decisions for their community. It goes beyond educating people in social ways, in which case I think that still does need to be a priority. Too many people will think it's perfectly acceptable to say if I was you I'd kill myself because eugenics is so normalised. People are especially scared of conditions to do with ageing in that sense, and if they see any similarities it gets to their own fears about themselves and what could happen to them and their body and their health. And I don't think enough is done to diffuse that in conversation. The onus is always on you to educate all the time. And frankly, they, the universities would have money left over to help other parts of the education system to mean more disabled people don't struggle earlier on in their lives and can access university in the first place. Because there's still so many people who struggle early on and never get to catch up. People with disabilities are frequently assumed to share the same views, experiences and priorities regardless of their gender, age, cultural background, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, religion and other categories. But I feel this podcast um, and with your experiences, we have successfully at least put disability out of one box because accessibility, your own experiences are very different from what just sort of abled body people put disability into one box. Um, thank you so, so much, Deeksha, Dan, and Hamza, for being here today, for sharing with us your very deep personal experiences, and for providing us an insight into your world. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a feature that you'd like to appear in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk.